Hey, everybody, welcome back to Crazy Money. I hope you had a great Christmas or Hanukkah and that you got some great time with your family and your friends and some time to reflect on how grateful you are for all the good things you have in your life. Well, here we are in that week in between Christmas and New Year's where uh, you have opportunity to hopefully relax and take some walks to get away from your family and burn off some of those excess holiday calories. I found that over Thanksgiving, I missed my favorite podcasts. Uh, A lot of podcasters take time off during the holidays for some well-deserved rest from the labor-intensive process of making a podcast. So you don't have a podcast to listen to. We don't have an original episode for you this week. What I thought I'd do is go back in the archive. We're going back. We're going back in the archives, kids, to uh, give you something to listen to that maybe you haven't heard ever or haven't heard in a long, long time that will scratch your crazy money itch during this week, this week where melancholy might seep in, where where you might get a little frustrated, where you get stir crazy. So you've got this to listen to during a walk or that windshield time getting to and from grandmother's house. This first one that we're going to share with you is our second episode ever of Crazy Money, and it is with Dr. Drew Pinsky. That's right, Dr. Drew, famous from Loveline and all his other TV shows over the years. The origin of this conversation comes from Mike Carano, editor producer extraordinaire of Crazy Money Podcast, who urged me for years to do a podcast on money and happiness. And we f- I finally listened to him way too late, but uh, better late than never, right? And Mike had been on Loveline many times and is friends with Dr. Drew. And so he graciously offered to ask Dr. Drew if he'd be willing. And Dr. Drew that much more graciously agreed to do it. So Mike and I went, went to Pasadena, California, sat on the couch at the Pinsky house. And Dr. Drew and I talked about life his career, the ups and downs of broadcasting, uh, the the pros and cons of fame and money and all this kind of stuff. We talked about Ulysses S. Grant in a book that he had recommended the time I'd, I'd met with him before. And it's just really fun to listen to this episode from five years ago. This was originally posted January 30th, 2019. And it's fun to see what progress we've made as a program and all the great people we've talked to in the interim. And I think Dr. Drew is really instrumental in that because he was a recognizable name that I booked early, it made it easier to book other guests since they could look at him and go, well, I I know that name. I know who Dr. Drew is. And I guess if Dr. Drew did it, then I guess I could do it, which I think was one of the reasons that Ron Lieber from the New York Times said yes for our fourth episode. He came back again a couple years later for his other book. And then, you know, Ed Rowland from Collective Soul did it, I think, for episode eight. And then I was putting points on the board and I've been able to book really great people ever since. So I'm grateful to Dr. Drew and to Mike for getting us off on a good start with Crazy Money. The original outro is at the end of this episode. Fun to listen to that. And what else? That's it. Enjoy this conversation from five years ago when I had a little bit more hair. This is Dr. Drew. Last time we were together, you told me to read the Ron Chernow biography of Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah, did you? I did. It's long. Yeah, but, it, <laughs> but you, you were engaged though, right? It was fascinating. I mean, yeah. uh, it was... Taylor especially pages. Living, Living in the South, it was really interesting to read about Reconstruction and just how incredibly brutal it is. And it's actually somewhat relevant given all the voter suppression stuff that's going on. It, it was like reading those parts and what Grant was contending with in the, the states in the South, yeah, life-changing for me. Because I didn't realize it's a piece of American history we have covered up. For sure. We don't think about, we don't talk about, we don't even know it existed. Ugh, it, was, it was that bad. 
and and you see just, bits and pieces of it every day the further you drive out of atlanta i i understand but i thought i was seeing jim crow i thought i was seeing slavery mm-hmm. but what i'm seeing was reconstruction and the horrors that were perpetrated yeah. and i think a lot of it got forgotten because most of the people that were subjected to it were are dead and yes. it was and it was uh Stephen Douglas, who's Stephen Douglas, the, the black uh, orator. Am I getting his name right? Uh, anyway, he's he had said they, they you know, he Frederick was Douglas. Frederick Douglas. There you go. Stephen Douglas was the politician. Frederick Dulles, Douglas said that he was regretful of the Civil War because slave they'd given up the lash for the shotgun. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was just horror, horror on horror. So anyway, yeah. did, it, um, did it change your view of American history at all? I think it really reminded me of, well, there's several things I take away from the book. First of all, what a modest man Grant was. Oh, my God, yes. For, and, and a and failure in everything. Everything. Except being a general and a president. Yeah. At which he was extraordinary. Yeah. And you think, God, how many people in this world are overlooked just because they haven't found that thing that they do well? And they're not just overlooked, but history and ability have to come together, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He could have been a great general, and this people that don't know, he was a, I think, a sergeant in the Mexican American War, and then was a, something like that. Performed yeah. at a very high level, and then failed ever after until he became until the Civil War broke out. Had the Civil War not broken out, he would have been just a right. Couldn't a, make a penny, living off his in laws, yeah. failure in business, Fa- failure as a, as a tanner, as a, as a leather tanner, That's failure right. as a farmer, failure as everything. Right. Yeah. Wow. So. That's Mike Carano, producer extraordinaire. So uh, thank you, Dr. Drew, for making time to do this. I'm joined today by Dr. Drew Pinsky, board-certified physician, multi-platform broadcaster and addiction specialist, uh, who's joining us. Dr. Drew, as a, as a person that's dealt with the world of addiction for decades, uh. I'd love for your thought on this. Is, is money a drug? No, well, can, I'm sure it could be for some people, but it becomes a drug when people get high winning and losing. So the gambling is where it becomes a drug. And of course, that can also bear out in finance, right? People mm-hmm. get high doing that. It's interesting. Gambling has several different sort of varieties. One is people that get high winning, which is actually a small minority. There's a group that gets high losing, and there's a group that gets high debting. Debt. Yeah. So there's debt. How, how do you get high losing? I have. It, I think I have lost aversion. I do too. Losing is very painful to me. I have more than loss aversion. I have catastrophizing. So I cannot <laughs> contemplate losing. But uh, the ones that like losing are people that come from a certain traumatic background and don't feel alive unless, and they'll tell me this, unless my back is against the wall. That's when I feel real. That's when I feel myself. They feel alive because they're yeah. threatened. They're in the hole, and they got to find a way out. That, mm-hmm. That's when they feel most alive. Mm-hmm. For you and I, that just sounds horrible. It sounds awful. Yeah. I can't imagine anything worse. And is debt the same thing? Debt, I, I'm, I haven't dealt with too many debtors. Yeah, debt, the ones I've dealt with usually in that same zone, but but they they bleed into the shopaholics, and mm-hmm. the, so the shopaholics sometimes become the debtors also. Is shopping a drug, or does, does shopping release the same kind of emotions or brain chemicals that drugs do? Very much the same brain chemicals. Not in the, Obviously not in extra-physiological ways, because you're not taking an extra-physiological pharmacological agent, mm-hmm. but you can get very high levels of these things charging into your brain. And often, the ones I've seen that are really compulsive had some sort of conditioned experience where they'd, you know, never met their dad 
and he, or this, I've I heard this one story once specifically. My mom left when I was two. She came back when I was ten, and we went to the Burlington coat shop and we bought coats. And now this woman is a compulsive coat shopper. God, <laughs> yeah. And so, so that experience was so glorious to her that that's how she manages her affects ever after. But I, I want to talk about money specifically, though. Okay. That was your question. Yes. So we're really talking about the behaviors around money, not money yes. itself. Money is a symbol, mm-hmm. right? It's not really anything else. It's just a made-up concept that we all agree upon. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a symbol, and it has lots of meaning, lots of different kinds of meaning to lots of different kinds of people. And so people use it as a means to identify themselves, as a means to keep score. How does that— a, a symbol of worth, a symbol mm-hmm. of uh, accomplishment, a symbol of status I, within the status, tribe. Status, yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's nothing, right? It's mm-hmm. just something we made up that we agree is something. <laughs> Wait, right? what? Money is nothing? Right, right? I mean, it means a lot. But <laughs> Why have I been yeah. working so hard <laughs> but, for but, all these years? But you know what I mean. We, it's, the dollar bill isn't actually— There's nothing there. Nothing it's, a, there. it's a social contract. Right. It's a, it's a, we agree is meaningful, and we all mm-hmm. agree upon it. And as such, we use it to uh, you know accumulate certain you know psychologically important— We use it for psychological reasons. You live in sort of the intersection of so many different stimuli yeah. in Los Angeles, yeah. in the entertainment industry— very visible person, and in the world of addictive behaviors. Yeah. And so how do you see those things? How do you see money exacerbating addiction or vice versa? Are these correlated I don't think— Things. I, you know, money is, is a problem for drug addicts because they don't have it and they need to get <laughs> it to get their drugs. Right. But I don't think there's any other— I don't, I don't find myself talking to drug addicts about money very often. It's just a means to an end yeah, it's for a them. Means to an end for them. Yeah, they, they're in, in survival mode all the time. But do you now th- later it starts to have funny meaning because they've never had to even deal with money, and so the idea of counting money and saving money and having a bank account—these are all novel ideas. And so when they're in the recovery, in they recovery. have to learn very basic life yeah. skills for adults, hundred percent, and sort of just saving for this for next month and right understanding right. what a you know, what a healthcare is and what a salary is and what a savings account is. And that's the only time I find myself talking to them about money. Mm-hmm. Later. Just functional ways to live, to be well and mm-hmm. live just a normal, a normal of, life. Right. Just a normal part of function, daily living function. And, and do you think that living in, living in Los Angeles where there's so much, there seems to be a lot of putting on and trying to pretend you're somebody and, you know, the 9-11 parked outside of the uh, one-bedroom studio apartment. Do you see people struggling with that? Well, now you're getting into sort of personality stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And it's funny, just when you said that, I thought to myself, oh, yeah, of course they struggle with that because addicts are grandiose and self-preoccupied and can be highly narcissistic before they let go of all that. And sometimes it takes a, a few big falls before they're willing to let that go. But it does remind me a bit of how millennials are these days. In, uh, in, in what way? In, is in that? Not in terms of them needing status or symbols of status, but that they they want to sort of be given their ultimate muse. Like this is you know immediately. I want to be whatever it is. They just want it immediately, and uh, addicts are that way too. When you say they want their muse, meaning they want to find something that 
they, they want to do their thing without worrying about money. Like there's some of that. Money, there's or? some of that, that that somehow capitalism and money is some sort of a disdainful mm-hmm. uh, anachronism. Mm-hmm. But it's more than that. It's it's that I, I hear them all the time. Like I haven't figured out what I ultimately want to do yet. Right. Until I find that ultimate thing. Right. I'm not even going to work. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Well, the, the idea of starting somewhere and building up and finding and things leading and past, no. I see what you're saying. None of that. And how do you think that... Is, and addicts is, is do that, that stuff too. Addicts do that kind of thinking. Is that a result is, uh, of, of how they were raised or... We don't know. I I, I talk to parents all the time. We, mm-hmm. we always think, like, what did we, how do we get... Where did this come from? It's got to have something to do with college professors because it didn't come from their families of origin. <laughs> it's, so, the co- it's the college professors? So, somehow it came from their, their university environments. I'm convinced of it. Because there's nothing about the families of origin that suggests... Anything like that would be something appealing to these kids. We've spoken to um, some very successful millennials, and one of them said, I never wanted to work for the man. And, and I thought That's of, the kind of thing they say, yeah. But they don't even know what that means. Right. It's like working for the man means starting low. Working for anybody is what they mean. Right. They don't want to be, a, they don't want to be accountable to anyone. That's crazy. It, well, it, it, it seems like it's almost a, re, it's a replay of hippie culture because I remember bit. growing up in the 80s and watching Family Ties and thinking Alex Keaton was the coolest kid because he was the ultimate organizational man. And I was like, I want to work for I want to work for IBM or Coca-Cola. I want to be a senior vice president. That's what success looks like. Yeah. I want to wear a white shirt and a red tie. I want to drive Buick. Buick Lesabre. Well, you're, you must be the reason millennials are so fucked up. They, because they've gone like, the this opposite. guy's a dork. They've gone the He's opposite He's a loser. That you're the guys they're reacting to. Now I understand it. The generation just ahead of them they're pissed off at. It could be. Maybe. You're Maybe. not that older, that much older than me. Mm-hmm. A few years. So let's go back to how, did you get into medicine for the money? What was your, as you were, um, as you were coming up, what were you thinking about you wanted to be as a mm-hmm. professional? It was more, way more complicated than that. I mean, my uncle was a doctor. My dad was a doctor. Mm-hmm. I grew up, you know, being, I want to be like you, daddy. Mm-hmm. And then hit college, and I was like, well, what the fuck am I doing? I don't want to do this. Why, why did I? Why did I? I never made this decision to do it. You were studying biology was, or pre-med? Yeah, my first year. And, and I did well, but it killed me to do it. I had to just, it, I had to kill myself. And I just abandoned it. I abandoned it completely. I did all kinds of goofy things, but I was very unhappy. I, I mean, I thought... I was happier than I was the semester before, but then I slowly became depressed and started having panic attacks. And then I started thinking, maybe I should go back to those science. Maybe science is where I belong. And I immediately started feeling better. So I thought, oh, well, maybe I had to really look at that. You said you did some goofy things. Can you show me the theater and music oh. and just running into a left college? Theater's goofy. But I left college. I you know came back to Los Angeles and... I just didn't. I was just like a drift, and, and that's part of what was uncomfortable for me. I that's, so, so that's after. Was this in the middle of college or first after year, college? First semester, I did pre med. Next semester, I did pff, everything but, right. uh, and then left college for a while. So you didn't. So you thought you wanted to be a doctor, then you thought you, this isn't for me. You want to find I thought yourself I was an opera singer for five minutes. That was part of that whole process. Uh-huh. But I wasn't thinking about money the whole time. I wasn't. But when I decided to go back. Uh, I did think eh, maybe it'd be a more secure way to make a living. I guess. It's a safe way to make a living, yeah. being a doctor. Yeah. What was the uh, level of financial stress like in your house as a child? So I was trauma. Have I told you this before? We talked a little yeah. bit about this. So at, we, uh, the we didn't podcast. Ha- we didn't have any uh, lack. There wasn't a lack, and we lived in a nice environment. And I went to a private school, mm-hmm. and I, you know this kind of stuff, but. I had a father who was profoundly affected by the depression. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, only after his death did I come to understand that his family of origin had like a, and their family t- was together in a restaurant and they lost everything. Oh, wow. And he, they literally almost were out in the streets, almost homeless, certainly had food distress. My grandfather ended up opening a grocery store in this part of Chicago and became a grocer. And that's sort of how they made their living. But my father never forget that and was pounding on me from the age of, I'd say, under the age of two. Because we moved when I was two, and I remember him with this BS, but it really picked up around the age of two, which is if I needed, like, clothing or something. First mm-hmm. of all, they they would they sort of spoiled me, but whenever I got things, there was guilt, guilt, guilt. <laughs> right, like, right. Like, oh, kid that has everything. <laughs> what are we going to do with you? You know, they're, like, teasing me and guilting me. Right. And then when I needed clothing, my dad had this thing he would tell me, and he told me this story a thousand times, and every time I believed him. He said, oh, you need shoes? Well, when I was a kid, walked through the snow in Chicago with holes in my shoes. They tell, tell me a story right. about Chicago and the distress and we lost everything. And then you can buy shoes, but tomorrow I'll be in the poorhouse. It's okay. It's all right. I'll be in the poorhouse. <laughs> you, you can wave to me from the poorhouse. You can see me. I'll stand in the window. Right. And he would tell me these elaborate story about this place that I had constructed in my head. Mm-hmm. And this went on for years. Where Until you were how old? Twelve. Wow. Uh, Where it was just like, I was just in a panic that tomorrow was the end of the world. Yeah. And that I was going to cause some sort of financial destruction of the family. Your selfish need for shoes was going to pull down the Pinsky home. My my need for anything was going to result in disaster. And and I was specifically the the cause of it. It was... I, it sounds silly. He tried it on my kids. They laughed in his face. Right. And, 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 but I was mortified by it. And I still have this weird, catastrophic, panicky feeling because of it. I can't, can't shake it. And how does that, how does that manifest today? As, as, uh, you know, a, a chronic workaholic mm-hmm. and, and a saver, you know, a, a pecuniary saver, you know, mm-hmm. like you can't, can't let go of anything and have to save, 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 save. And um, never feeling like I'm accomplished anything. Always feel like I'm right. in trouble. You know. Hey, Dad, look at my IMDb. Yeah, <laughs> that no doesn't way. do anything. No. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> well, because there was another many, many. Obviously, a lot of other shit came with that psychology, sure. which was I never, never, whatever I did, it wasn't enough. It was mm-hmm. never acknowledged. It was never anything. Mm-hmm. Never, you know, I was just a, you know, I was a shithead, and that was that. When you graduated from college, you went to you went to med school at USC. Yeah, and then so did you feel like your dad was on your side, like he was supportive of what you were doing when you were going into medicine? Yeah, at that point, I, all was good, and mm-hmm. they and I and I, they paid for my education, which is something I. It's a big deal. Oh, it's a big deal, and and I so I ended medical school without any debt, and I was so appreciative of that 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 became one of my sort of goals in life to to feel like one one of the ways I know I'm okay is if I can pay for my kids college and graduate school that i just just i'm so grateful for that right he put dr drew we are in his home in pasadena california and he just pulled six cents and i'm saving it out of and a lipstick all kinds of weird stuff in my my Um, that's not your that's not your shade i believe that's my wife's how did your the way you grew up and your father sort of guilting you about buying you things how did that affect and by the way and as a result Never, bought, I never had clothing and things. I had like holes in my. I really looked like a hobo. because you didn't want to ask for anything. No, I and I, I 
And but he didn't want to buy me anything either. He, he literally, <laughs> literally did not want. So he wasn't putting on an act. For no, you. Oh, he was. This, this was. If he could create a state of depravity, it would be the best. That would be that'd be gratifying to him. That's that's because he was really scared, or because he wanted to teach you a lesson. Because his psychology was the trauma of the depression, and so he was living in his panic and fear and trauma of that, and he transmitted that to me. What are different ways a parent could have gone with that? Because some parents might have said, "Hey, I don't want my kids to have to feel the fear that I felt when I was a kid." Yeah, it might have gone the other way, right? And by overindulged, which I'm glad he didn't do, that mm-hmm. would not have been good. But he also might have gone, "Oh, this is goofiness. This is crazy. I'm, you know, I'm. This is my own reaction to these traumatic things, and mm-hmm. maybe try to contextualize it for me, and maybe make more of a narrative that I could understand rather than just this panic." Well, so that's kind of one of the reasons I want to do this podcast, which because I was I was raised in my we my we, we had everything we needed. Uh, but as I was joking with Mike about earlier, we, you know, I grew up in a house with eight people and three toilets, you know, which is uh, 0.327 mm-hmm. toilets per person, right? And mm-hmm. and so I wanted, I always wanted a bigger house. I always wanted more stuff. I didn't want to stress about money. And I thought if I made more money, I wouldn't stress. Well, that's, <laughs> I know, I know, but that's, but that's my fantasy too, that there's some, there's some place where I, my whole sort of mission became freedom. Right. I needed freedom. Defined how? Freedom from this, freedom from my parents. It, it, it was early, you know, my adolescence was freedom from them. Mm-hmm. That's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. I was tunneling out. Like I had to tunnel to freedom. Right. And then once I was out tunneled on the other side, it felt like I needed some sort of financial freedom. Mm-hmm. I cannot, I don't know what that means. Right. I don't know what that means, but I feel like as I have improved my financial situation, when people say, you know, there's all this happiness literature about how, well, if you make a certain amount, there's a certain threshold and then you don't feel happier. That is just false. That is categorically false. Which part of it? I have felt better and more relief each stage as I've got, you know, sort of accumulated more wealth. Really? Uh, significantly. What? Like significantly. And at times, I felt okay. And then, of course, it fades a little bit or markets go down or whatever. You know, you start to feel like, I'm not really, I'm not really good. I'm not okay. And is that based on sort of a, um, you have a multiple of your burn rate in the bank or because you've, you've crossed off? I don't even know what it is. It just feels, I just know that my feeling shifts. It's not, it's not an, there's not a quantitative formula attached to it. When your kids graduated from college, did you feel like, not just proud as a parent, but you felt like, check, I'm a provider. I got that done. But I got to get the grad school thing together. Right. Yeah. So do your kids want to go to grad school? Yeah. Okay. And and I'm struggling. To that do is that. that is a non trivial expense. Oh my God. I got one in law school, I got one in Columbia, I got another one to go to business school and right. you know, and I want to give them that. Sure. Period. What do and you want? It does not feel free. <laughs> it is not free. It's not no, free. I'm not free from burden. Oh, 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 you're not I'm free. Not you're free. not liberated. You're liberated, thank you. Do you think you'll be do you think you'll feel liberated know. when they graduate from their gr- graduate school program? I programs? wonder. That's funny, isn't that crazy? Is that do you have that same feeling? Uh, or anything I, like that. I feel, I feel good about where I am, but I also feel like I have a lot of life ahead of me, mm. and there's a lot of unknowns. And even though I've I've been very fortunate to save some money from Facebook, I kind of am also feeling like there's always pressure to spend more. To spend more. To, well, there's always there's always things you don't have that yeah. look nice. That, that wouldn't they be nice to have? Yeah, wouldn't yeah, it be yeah. nice to take this vacation? Wouldn't it be nice to fly first class or? private once in a while there's no limit to the desires to consume and so it's it's just really important for my wife and 
eye to stay on the same page or as much as possible. Yeah, of course. That's another whole layer to this too. Is it's the, crazy. It's a partnership to this. Right. Yeah. What did you want to teach your kids about money? What values about money did you want to instill I, in your I, kids? The main thing was I wanted them to understand that how capitalism works, that if you have capital, capital generates capital. Mm-hmm. And very few people are raised with that understanding. And I wanted to give them a feel for that, like to watch something. You know, I, I'm, I made them read The Little Blue Book, if you've read that investing book, The Little Blue Book mm-hmm. uh, on investing, and just, just get a sense of how how our systems work and really what's going on, not to think just in terms of wages and packages, you know, of, of whatever, you know, healthcare packages or whatever. Not, I, I not just them, income and benefits. Income but, and benefits, exactly. I want right, them to but, think in terms of how things accumulate and how, they, mm-hmm. how you build things. I compound build things. growth. I build things would really be the thing right. I, would, I was sort of interested in them understanding because I'm, I'm amazed how nobody thinks about that anymore. That's amazing to me. Well, it's amazing to me that not, not only do people not understand it, they sort of vilify it. Absolutely. And one of my kids still, he's kind of that way. Yeah. Like, like she announced last night, I took her to the airport, that, that capitalism is done. It's time for socialism. And, <laughs> and, and she has no attachment to any American values. And I, and I said, how many billions of people died so you could even say that? I mean, mm-hmm. just think about that. Right. That's, anyway. I was talking to a younger comic, um, and they're almost all younger. She said, you know, I know if I make more money, somebody else makes less money. And I was like, whoa, wait. Whoa. What? Where did that come from? Exactly. It's not, this is not a zero sum game. Oh my God, that's weird. And I said, and I was like, you know, there's a thousand businesses around here that would love to have you come work for them and work hard. She's like, well, I don't want to work hard. Oh, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's another part is a hard work that, that I want them to understand that a lot of, there's a lot of people with a lot of ability, but one thing you can always do is work harder than anybody else. Right, and, right. And that's another thing I wanted them to see and know. I, I kind of did that too much, and I think that— Because you overworked? Yeah, yeah. I, st- I still am a workaholic, but I don't overwork so much. I mm-hmm. will at times. I kind of—I still get—I really get kind of high overworking. I like it. What What are you getting from work right now? I mean, what what is the most fun thing you do besides podcasts from random Probably friends? podcasts friends. the most fun thing. I mean, I, I like—I do a lot of other people's shows and stuff, mm-hmm. and I, I just like— climbing into other people's things and see what I can make of it. And right. my whole thing has been an exploration, right? I mean, what, I'm a physician trying to use entertainment vehicles to make a difference. That's mm-hmm. all I do. Right. And I never know what that means or what it's going to look like or what people are going to propose to me. And they'll propose things to me that don't don't seem even appropriate sometimes. And I'll, I'll try it, see if I can make right. something good out of that. Right. And usually I can. Kind of not, non-traditional uh, shows like Celebrity Rehab would well, that was like a new thing, right? Yeah, that was like, well, they came to me and I was like, well, that's an interesting idea. Impossible. Impossible. Mm-hmm. But, and they kept coming. I kept saying, all right, well, let's try to, I tried problem solving problems. And we started solving all the problems one mm-hmm. after another. All the way to the day before we started filming, we had major problems. And they all got solved. And I thought, all right, let's try it. What, do you, what issues do you care about right now that you want to tell people about? I'm sort of overwhelmed by the homelessness thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't believe we let people languish on the streets. And we can. how can the government officials go to bed at night with that happening? Uh, we're having major infectious disease outbreaks that have a high probability of getting breaking out into the general community that will be profoundly destructive. Mm-hmm. And they're not doing anything about it. That, that I, I don't know. I can't sleep at night because of that. So that, that's got me um, uh, upset. Um, there's lots of things about the addiction opiate crisis that I, and I saw it happen. I predicted it. I was in the middle of it. I was complaining about it and okay, here it is. Right. And, uh, still people are barely listening. 
And then I'm trying to figure out the extreme narcissism that we're into right now mm-hmm. and the behavior of crowds. Uh, right. the, the, the mob. Action. This is a good time for me to plug my Twitter handle, by the way, it's <laughs> at Paul underscore Ollinger. But the behavior of crowds and, and where in history there's been a narcissistic turn, there's been crowd action and what the outcome of that has been and where it's always everything I can find so far. It went, it doesn't go well. It goes bad. So went clearly with background in social media, social media is playing a role in that. Mm-hmm. That's you, the town square now. Yeah. And, and has that just thrown gasoline on the fire of American or human narcissism? I, I don't know if it's made the narcissism work, but it's worse, but it's given them an environment to act out their mob behavior. Mm-hmm. What bothers me is the insistence of the crowd is it, it, you know, through history, it's off with their head, right? Right. Or imprison them. Mm-hmm. The, just short of that is take away their ability to make a living. Right. That's just short of imprisonment yes. or, or right. off with your head. So today, it, they have to be fired. They mm-hmm. must be fired. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a horrible thing. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm pissed at the uh, companies that do the firing. Mm-hmm. Their first action should be, thank you for notifying us. First thing we're going to do is not fire this person. We're going to do an investigation. Right. But we're not going to fire just because a mob says fire. That's duplicitous. It's mm-hmm. terrible. So false positives are a high cost of enforcement of these things, but there's a lot of douchebags that have been taken down because it's finally time that social media has given I'm, voices to I'm people. I'm not saying that's not. No, no, I'm not. Yeah. I'm, I'm just playing playing devil's advocate to say that there's social media has given voice to a lot of uh, people who independently don't have as much power as they do together. The flip side of that is that people get together and they if, can cause a lot of trouble. Right. If, if there was some sort of, listen, my radio partner is the woman that Harvey Weinstein did the plant thing on. She's, mm-hmm. She was the really, oh, really? she's the second one to say me too. I mean, wow. she was really in, in it. And, he just and likes I, ficus trees. And I, was, and I was telling her, I said, look, I just fear, look, if you look at the French Revolution, mm-hmm. the people that pulled out the guillotines first ended up on the guillotines. Right. It always eats itself. Yes. So I kept urging her, unless you have a process, unless there's a procedural component it will it will start to eat itself because that's the part I don't like. I don't mind that people take action and feel empowered to be express themselves, but it, the lack of any procedural or, or due process is where it goes off the rail. And the motivation is that social justice or or finding things that we agree with make us feel good that they they release brain chemicals to use my yeah uh, again street, that's the that's the part language. I'm trying to I'm trying to really create a a narrative that people can understand about what it is they're doing and why it's really envy they're acting out. Mm-hmm. Envy is the emotion that says, I feel better when I tear you down. Right. Bring you down to my size. Not jealousy where you have something I want because jealousy can be a positive motivator, right? Right. You have a, you know, whatever, a, a plane. I want to, I'm going to try to work hard to do that. That's I'm right. so jealous you have it, but That's I'm going right. to work hard to get it. As opposed to, I'm going to put bomb that thing and we're going to all attack it to make sure it goes away because it makes me feel bad. Well, envy, envy is an incredibly human emotion. I mean, we are, our happiness uh, based on all the reading I've done and I'm sure you're familiar with is that happiness is not based on absolute circumstances, but on relative circumstances. Correct. Well, that, but it's a little, it's your, I wouldn't state it that categorically. I think all we know is that people tend to be happier unless somebody has something more <laughs> right. tend to be right then we look around and we become less happy the problem is the reason i wouldn't be too categorical with it the happiness literature is very frustrating for me because i'm not even sure they understand what they're talking about i'm not sure what they mean when they say happy mm. it's it's not being carefully dissected and so i at least want it broken into 
two categories. I would call it you. I would call it hedonic happiness, mm-hmm. like pleasure, and eudaimonic happiness, which mm-hmm. is nourishing, sustaining, good life. What it is, and those are two separate categories. And the good life, the eudaimonic happiness, not really affected by what other people have. Right. Not really. I am hitting the road in 2024, and I want you or your friends who live in the places where I'll be to come out and see me tell jokes in person. It'll be great, won't it? It's going to start out December 30th in Black Mountain, North Carolina, right there outside of Asheville at the White Horse Black Mountain. January 11th, I will be in Austin, Texas at Roscoe's Comedy Club with my friend Paul Faravahar, Faravahar, with our Two Pauls, One Show show. We'll also be doing that show at, on February 22nd at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco. That's right. It's an intellectual kind of town. We're doing that same show again, Zany's Comedy Club in Nashville, Tennessee on February 28th and taking it to the DC Comedy Loft April 19th and 20th. May 3rd and 4th, I'll be headlining the Denver Comedy Lounge in Denver, Colorado. That's May 3rd and 4th. All these dates are on my website, paulollinger.com. Oh, also doing the country club shows around Atlanta, Dunwoody Country Club on January 25th with Andrew Stanley. January 26th, I'll be hosting for Mia Jackson at Capital City Club right down the street from where I'm sitting right now. April 18th, Atlanta Athletic Club. Uh, headliner to be determined on that one. And I think there's another one, but I can't remember it right now. Anyway, paulollinger.com for the whole list of shows. If you can't come, tell your friends to come out. Thank you so much. You've said, and I'll, I'll use a quote from an old New York Times article, yeah. sometimes I think the patient I'm treating is the culture. That's how I got involved. When, when I first got involved with radio 35 years ago, it was sex, drug, and rock and roll. And right. I was a 25-year-old resident or 26-year-old resident. I was thinking, oh, man, this radio is messing things up. We got all these STDs. <laughs> no, really. I was like, we got, these, radio. we got all these STDs and yeah. the drug use and stuff. Yeah. It's, 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 it's been encouraged on the radio. Yeah. People forget what a force radio was back right. then. And I thought, if I just get in there and be a force you know, for the other direction, maybe yep. we can make a difference. So, yes, the culture is what I thought I was treating then. If you didn't have the telegraph, there wouldn't be chlamydia. Is what's, <laughs> uh, no, but, but, but I don't mean to, to throw an old quote at you. I mean, I think it's, it's very relevant because it seems to me you're talking about the same thing. Yeah, am, and that our, culture, our yeah. culture still emphasizes the hedonic over the eudaimonic. Eudaimonic, eudaimonic yeah, 100%. Eudaimonic, trying to brush up on my Stoics recently, but I'm still <laughs> having trouble with some of the Greek. That we focus way too much on the hedonic, yep. and we think that happiness is based on on chasing that dragon of the next car. And that's why I was picking on L.A. earlier, because you don't see it anywhere nearly as much as you do in New York and L.A., right? I mean, it manifests yeah. in the Stepford Wives in my neighborhood. And, so not my—sorry, I love my neighbors. I love all my neighbors. Well, but, no, you it manifests in the suburbs in different ways. Well, but to get back to the millennials again, I, I think that's one of the things that their codes that they're cracking that is good. They're they're not so interested in those kinds of things. They're searching for something that is not necessarily hedonic in I, nature. Uh, oh, I can't say that, but they're not not material in so much material hedonistic. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, in their hand, they hold the, these phones that they hold in their hand give them essentially everything. Right? And they don't have need cars because they have Uber, and they don't need place to live because they have mom and dad. And right. They have, and, it, and they just they aren't measuring themselves against other each other in terms of what they have so much because everything kind of works and everything's good but are they measuring themselves based on experiences i yes, mean like they are. so so yes, they're saying they and, and talking about like one of the reasons why uh social media breaks down the distance between people the perceived distance between people which makes envy that much more profound Correct. because i see the trip that you yep. took 
you know, you're in Patagonia backpacking, you know, in your recyclable Tom shoes mm-hmm. or whatever as a millennial and say I don't have the same amount of resources or my student loans or, you know, six figures, I can't take that trip. Certainly doesn't. I contrib- still envy that. You envy it and it doesn't contribute to your happiness until you tear them down. Right. And then your happiness is enhanced again. <laughs> See how it works? Yeah. And that's not good. That is not a great paradigm. You disagree, Mike? It's not. It was Schadenfreude is, but Schadenfreude's in order to feel better. Maybe happiness is the wrong word again. Schadenfreude is you. You get pleasure out of somebody else falling down mm-hmm. or losing yeah. their. Mm-hmm. That's what this, that's what he kind of said. Yeah. Uh, but they don't because they move right on to the next thing. They move on to the next social media you know, target. Yeah, I, I don't know what to make of that article yet. This the is one about the expanding Medicaid. About and, Dayton in the New York Times yesterday? Yeah. I know the opioid epidemic is turning everywhere. It's so turning? It's getting much better everywhere. Much, much, much. Because to what do you attribute that? Well, mul- the government moved on multiple fronts very aggressively. Mm-hmm. And one of the areas that they moved it, that I've been asking for for a long time is they essentially scared doctors. They, they started putting doctors in prison for overprescribing, and Jeez. it just stopped. That's right. how we got the problem in the first place. Right, yeah. They put doctors in prison for underprescribing, right. for inadequate treatment of pain, calling that reckless negligence and elder wait, abuse. Wait, 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 wait. So go back. Tell me that, tell me that story because I don't know about this. In the 1990s, early 2000s. Read the book um, Dreamland. He goes through it perfectly, exactly how it happened. Who wrote so Dreamland? Like, uh, Sam Cunonius. Okay. And it, he wrote it. He, he nailed it. That's a QIN. QIN. Okay. Uh, and... He, they put doctors in jail and prison for and fined them millions of dollars for reckless negligence if pain wasn't adequately treated or elder abuse or both. For not giving for the not adequate treatment of pain. And who is pushing the prosecution of these doctors? Pain, pain advocacy groups, medical societies, and the you know, state organizations and attorneys because they saw a new way to get make money. Jeez. It sent shudders through the medical community. So we started sending everybody with pain to pain management doctors mm-hmm. who took the position that pain is what the patient says it is and pain control is what the patient says it is. And that was on. And, and opioids were non-addictive. That I, was their other position. I vaguely remember. Which they still defend. It's unbelievable. I vaguely remember reading studies saying you will recover faster if you're not in pain. There were so many crazy studies out about controlling pain and how they literally would say that if pain, if you were in pain – you couldn't get addicted because the pain soaked up the high of the drug. That, that was their. Lo- I know it's it's so bizarre. It's so much. It's only people who don't understand addiction could say. Officer, shit like I'm that. not drunk. I'm just absorbing the pain. Yeah, the pain absorbed my intoxication. <laughs> it's the craziest thing ever. They would say things like that, and and I would treat these people, and they'd put them back on pain meds, and it was just the most frustrating thing in the world. It was unbelievable. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So, so anyway, do you think, so, so uh, as I recall from the article, Ohio increased its Medicaid budget by a billion dollars and saved 250 lives. Well, right. And we that's, are, that's just oversimplification. That, that of the seems article. about right. And we have expanded Medicaid in California and what? We still are, we still are struggling. Right. So to, to say expanding Medicaid is the solution, Medicaid needs to be expanded in a very enlightened way. And we need certain kinds of resources and we need armies of people working in it. And we need we here's what we need to expand the definition of greatly disabled and conservatorships so we can actually treat people that are so in their disease they don't want treatment we can get them treatment so they can wake up and feel better. The subtitle of this episode will be Doctor Drew solves the opioid and homeless crises. There you go in 140 characters. That's it. I think what I was looking for was how do we 
Oh, well, come on. You can't, I know, you, you can't put a price on people's lives. I mean, they, Ford but, tried to do that in the Pinto, in the, remember? In right. the Pinto trial. Sure. Uh, but but the, the question is, and this is something I've had to struggle with my whole career, how do you limit resources for medical problems? Is Should it? you put that towards prevention or do you, I mean, like, how, prevention? How do you, I'm not sure. I mean, if you have a finite, you know, when, when there is all this talk of death panels, yeah. basically a death panel is just we a do really, waste unbelievable amounts of money in ICUs on people that have well, zero probability of survival. A death panel is a very ugly way to put the fact, yeah. to, to put the fact that we have a finite amount of resources and an unlimited number of demands. Yeah, that's correct. And I, I don't, I don't know the answer. I've always felt that the, the most efficient unit is a well-trained physician and an, an enlightened patient. Mm-hmm. If you have a, somebody with great judgment shepherding this thing and a patient who understands what's going on, you know, sort of uh, properly educated, those two will make a great decision and, and will limit resources. You can go to a, an enlightened physician, will go to a patient that's motivated and say, hey, if we have no probability of survival, I'd like to know that if that, we get in that situation, you'll give me permission to, you know, terminate things because mm-hmm. it's, it's no point. I, I have that conversation all the time with patients, but a lot of people don't. So speaking of physicians... If I want to make a good living, should I go into the medical profession? No. no. no? Oh, no, no, no. Doctors were the rich parents in my, when, when I was Yeah, a that's kid. over. That's done. I mean, surgeons, I guess, still make a lot of money. Yeah. That's it. Or highly specialized, you know, cash and carry type surgeries. So can sure. you break down the economics, high level overview of the economics of uh, becoming wait, a doctor today? Well, it's, it's a million dollar education, mm-hmm. actually, to get through medical school and everything. That, mm-hmm. That's your first expense. And then your everything is price controlled by insurance companies and Medicare. Uh, if you're an internist like me, you're seeing older people mostly because that's who mm-hmm. gets sick. So it's mostly mm-hmm. Medicare. Medicare you won't let you see more than four people in an hour, uh, and they'll pay you about thirty six dollars per person. So that's one hundred and forty four dollars per hour. And it costs about a hundred dollars to run a practice an hour per hour. Yeah, forty four bucks isn't bad. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad after <laughs> For dedicating a million your dollar life education and right? dedicating your life stuff. And and you can make the the only way you can sort of amplify your income is by working excess hours right. in hospitals and things like excessive hours. So when can, the, when the office is closed, then you're generating income that's essentially clear. So how do you feel about these concierge medical services? It's great. Yeah, I, I go to one. Yeah, that's should a anybody feel bad about having one or being a doctor? Who, I, I, who you should feel bad about having one, but I can understand feeling bad doing it as a physician because you you're excluding certain kinds of people and you're it's just weird. It's weird to be doing that to making a club out of your practice. It also you know again I like seeing really sick people and they're all Medicare and Medicaid and those those populations. Right. And I worry I would wonder how it would affect my skill set. So where do we go from here as a society? The, they must empower primary care. If they if they empowered primary care, what, is, what does that mean? Internists like me and family practitioners and pediatricians. If we could, if we could, for instance, just say in a in a court of law that uh, my defense is it was my judgment at the time to, to not order that test or not order that CAT scan. That was just mm-hmm. my opinion, mm-hmm. and it means something that wouldn't incur massive liability. It would all be, it would be game on. We'd, we'd save so much money, It'd be unbelievable. And what steps and would have to be taken to get there? Tort reform. You'd have to be massive, massive tort reform. Mm-hmm. And, and you'd have to, again, start to actually pay internists to do the, I mean, do, you do everything internal medicine. You take care of the family. You take care of the end of life stuff. You take care of the insurances. You take care of, you're doing everything. And you're the very, very menial, you know, pay. 
And if they enhance that and discourage the, the consulting, you know, everything gets a consultant, mm-hmm. they could save tons of money. Tons and tons. So I'm self-employed, which means I get to buy my insurance on the exchange. Mm-hmm. My choices in the state of Georgia are very limited and extraordinarily expensive. Fortunately, I can afford this. How can we make insurance work better for, for everyone? Could you do any kind of self-insurance type setup? Could you figure out a self-insurance? You meaning set up a fund or something and find some way of ma- managing well, your own? I mean, I could, risk, I could, I, I, I could get, we go for basically catastrophic insurance. Which is great. That's still right. very expensive. I mean, we're paying like, uh, I mean, I think we probably have a silver plan. It's not totally catastrophic, but I mean, paying $24,000 a year in premiums for a family of four wow. with $6,000 deductibles per person. Oof. That's pretty catastrophic. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Because <laughs> um, I always thought, you know, insurance, if you're an individual purchaser, should be catastrophe. That's what it's for. It's, right. for, it's insurance, not right. entitlement. It's yeah, insurance. Yeah. Right. And and be sure you have again you're self funded on the on the other side that you can cover whatever other expenses might be you might come upon until you hit that catastrophic point. Yeah, it's even about seeing the doctor you want to see. That I mean, you like basically these insurances are like oh we'll we'll set you up with a dermatologist in three months. Where not sure we'll just we'll, we'll see you then. That's your plan now. Basically, still? yeah. I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus. Mm-hmm. Basically. All right, kind of back to more personal stuff. And we talked about managing your career over time. You still work, you're still raising kids. You want to pay for their education. Well, Dr. Drew, you're famous, so clearly you're fabulously wealthy. It must be. It must happen, right? <laughs> and and I think it has some, for most of the 20th century, rich and famous went together, mm-hmm. right? And then it started fragmenting towards the end of the 20th century where, you know, all the different platforms started developing and thousands of television stations. And so- People were getting involved in projects where they're not making a lot of money, right? And and there wasn't a lot for them to do afterwards either. And you know, they, now there's lots of different platforms, lots of things to be done, but they're relatively low reimbursement, right? So somebody who was, I mean, you must see all over LA people that were making tons of money 20 years ago that can't pay Struggling. their rent today. I think I think it's one of the reasons you're seeing a lot of movie actors on TV now. Well, TV is a pretty good place to make a living right now. I think it, at times. Well, there's it, great projects on television. I'm not yeah. saying you're paying millions and millions I of dollars. I think if you're in success, maybe at renegotiation time, but not at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And there's no more residuals and no, there's not, no back end at Netflix nothing, and all that very stuff. Very little of that stuff. How, so how do you think at this point in your career, how do you think about continuing to work over the next 5, 10, I 20 just, years? I just feel like if you're going to exist, you have to exist on multiple platforms and I'm just mm-hmm. out there trying different things. And everything is just a, a tiny, it's like multiple different hoses dripping into the bucket. Right, right. <laughs> there's, no, there's no spigot that's turned So on. there's no more like, hey, I, there's just very few people that I'm the guy that does this, you know, or I'm the, I'm, I'm the big, I make 30 million bucks a year anchoring there ABC are, Nightly News. There's stuff like that out there, but they're very rare. Right. Exceedingly rare. I mean, I, I can't even, you know, I guess Dr. Phil is somebody that, Ellen, yeah, there's a handful. But there's also there's also people that are that that have kind of taken the platform that have taken over their own platform and you know they write books or they have their own radio show that they produce and yeah but that's that's just you just mentioned two things handful that, of people you you just mentioned two things that if you're lucky you could make a living radio is a dying medium mm-hmm. books don't sell 
I sold I, almost 1,500 copies of my well book. Done, well <laughs> done. Well <laughs> done. Books are not a way to make anything. And, right. And radio is not a way to make anything mm-hmm. anymore. It, I mean, it's, but it, but you could be one of many, many different things you did. Right. Um, Have so, you gotten into ownership of platforms? Are you part of the, the group behind management, any of this stuff? What do you mean? Well, management? like for your podcast networks or anything like that? Yeah, or, I own some of the stuff. Yeah. yeah. We try to own. I mean, uh, try. Do you, do you enjoy the business part? I mean. Yeah. I mean, I don't, my wife manages a lot of it. I don't, I don't, I, I try to stay focused on what I have to do. Right. Right. And, and, and my only goal is to make a difference. That's, that's my only goal to try to try to have a positive impact and have a little fun doing it and maybe, right. you know, do something interesting. And I, I, I'm so grateful, you know, gratitude is something I, I experience a lot of. Right. Because, you know, when I was getting up at five every morning and struggling to get home at 10 every night, practicing medicine for 20 years. This all seems like a vacation, <laughs> right. and, and and it's pleasurable and it's interesting. And yeah. I get to interact with lots of interesting people and yeah. think about interesting ideas and try to find creative ways to make a difference. That, that's that's kind of something that we feel I feel pretty grateful for. So I think uh, you know money is the number one thing that married folks fight about. What is something you think is a must-have that your wife thinks is an extravagance? I, I think again, I'm pretty austere. I don't have any must-haves. Yeah. I always feel like, this is insane, but I always feel like if I could afford like a a big barrister for making coffee and cappuccinos, uh-huh. I would have made it. Like, like if I had, if <laughs> That's I what you want? If I, if I, no, I don't want it. I just feel like if I could afford it yeah. and it wouldn't bother me, like I wouldn't feel guilty or weird about it, that would be a good thing. A full-time barrister that shows up. No, no I don't have somebody to run it. Just it oh, has to be sort of a professional like setup. A, like a crazy cappuccino machine. Like a crazy, like like something you'd see in an Italian oh, little yeah, coffee yeah. bar. Those things are expensive. I, they're ridiculous. And, and, and it's like, like 30 I would never grand do that. Or something. I would never right, do it. Right. And that's why I know if I ever were at a point where I could do that, right. it'd be like, wow, I really, now, this is incredible. Do you not do it because that's freedom. you would that's feel... freedom. <laughs> do you not do it because you would feel guilty about it or do you not do it because if you did it, you would lose the... Uh, moral high ground no. on your wife in negotiating no, finances. No, no, I just can't imagine doing it. I can't imagine doing it. That's why if I could do it, mm-hmm. it feels like, wow, that would be... A, if, if Because think about it, all this stuff is very emotional, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, if I got to a place financially where I felt like mm-hmm. I could spend that money on myself and my right. family and not feel bad about it, how much would that be? I don't even know. I don't even know. But when I, I know if I could do it, I was there. Right. And I don't know if I, that's ever a possibility for Have me. Have you ever deprived yourself of something because you thought Constantly. you would Whatever lose it? Whatever it is. No, <laughs> that you thought you would lose the moral high ground in negotiating uh, with, wife, with your wife. Here's here's what I did with my wife. Mm-hmm. I, 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 did, I don't know if she knows I did this, but I, I made a pretty interesting move. My wife did not understand this aspect of money that we were talking about in the very beginning of this conversation about building. Mm-hmm. Money. And I used to micro, micro, micromanage everything and do my own taxes. And, yeah. and, and I slowly put everything in her hands, mm-hmm. including what I was doing in terms of investing and things. Really? And I didn't, like her, I didn't let her adjust anything on the investment side without us talking about it. But I, I put her sort of in charge of the flows in our household. And, man, it changed her and her really? thoughts a lot. Because before... She was buying a lot of clothing and, and didn't seem to understand why I was upset about it. And once I put her in charge of how things were moving around, she became like me. She became very much like-minded. Mm-hmm. And uh, so stuff we used to conflict about, which was her shoes and clothing, right. primarily, which 
then back to my dad's stuff, of course, pushed every button. And I remember, like, God, he used to bother me buying breakfast, you know, at hotels and things. It was so goddamn expensive. It would drive me crazy. Right, yeah. Uh, oh, the $40 pots of coffee. Yes. Oh, my God, that does. But, but now. That's, I, I would get I up and go, what? where were you? I was in the lobby. Here's your coffee. Oh, I still did. Without, <laughs> almost without exception. But I will occasionally buy. Here's how I know I'm better. Yeah. Will occasionally buy breakfast in the hotel and not have a feeling about it. I really, I won't feel bad about it. I won't do it all the time, right? Uh, but when I do it, I don't feel bad about it. When before, I was just devastated. I would, did you have my patience? I had to see to get. Oh my god, that's like a whole day's work right there, just to eat breakfast in the room. Like, oh my god, I don't do that anymore. I have my wife check out of hotels because I can't look at the bill. Uh, me too. I can't do 100%. it. Hundred percent. Except, except I know she's being conscious and conscientious about right. this stuff now. Right. And and I hear we talk about it, and it, it's a common, we share a common language and a common intent now mm-hmm. that did not 30, 25 years ago. That's interesting. Yeah. And so- I, So how, how long were you married when you before you did that? Probably 10, 15 years. Wow. And, and I just put her in charge. Now I don't even think of, now she just, she's in charge. Right. And I feel, I trust her completely in what she's doing, and the management has been good. That's the Madoff strategy. Just give it all to. <laughs> give it all. <laughs> I have a question for both you guys that, that maybe you can discuss amongst yourselves. But I'm curious, like, what kind of purchases do you make without telling your wife? Will you buy a new car and not tell your wife that? Just come home with a new car. It, I would never, that? would never do something like buy a new car without telling my wife. What's, never. That's, ever, a, ever. that's okay. So, uh, I, but, but I tell you what, I do do occasionally. Is I'll make excessive Amazon purchases. What does like, that mean? Um, like I would like to be buying nothing on Amazon, right? And I'll buy like sunglasses, or I'll buy some coffee, or I'll buy uh, what did I get recently? Just nonsense. And I and I and she sometimes let me know about it. Like, hey, what the hell? And and that's weird to me. I'm not spending a lot of money. Like I bought four pounds of. Starbucks coffee <laughs> came just now. And, and I was like, well, why? But I did it and we need it, kind of, but not necessarily. And but are you, but it's not going to get thrown away. No, we'll use it, but it still was like, hmm. Why do you, what, what's going on with you that you're doing that? I don't know. I, uh, you know what's going on with me? Hmm. I'm in a, a, a moral panic about my income right now because everything's getting slashed in, in 2019. Is that right? Yeah. So I got to find a way out. Mm-hmm. And so I'm doing this weird compulsive minor Amazon purchases. Like, I don't know what that is. It's weird. Like, like, <laughs> well, those are relatively I've minor never, expenditures. I know. I've never spent, I, none of it's over 30 bucks. I don't know if you're becoming more like me. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to buy a watch. I'm going to get shoes. And this is going to be perfect. Isn't it a weird instinct? Like, like, I'm losing, I'm getting in trouble. Therefore, I'm going to quickly get some expenses in here. So you've been it's doing like this for 30 myself. years. Are you stressed about the future? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Particularly now. Because yeah. of what's going on in, in media overall? In your... Everything. Just everything. I, I'm trying to finish the grad school payments for the kids. Right. Uh, media is shrinking and you know, becoming very difficult to get anything on television, certainly. Right. And just trying to find ways to make a living is very challenging. Mm-hmm. And I have this very strange feeling, generally, that I'm on like the 15-yard line of a long game and I'm about to I, I could get in the end zone i don't know what that means getting right. in the end zone but i feel like i'm quarterbacking a team that's on the 15 yard line and i've got four downs 
and I don't know. And the team is your family. And... Uh, it's yeah, it's in my life. I just would like to get in the end zone. Right. I have no idea what the end zone holds or what that means. Mm-hmm. I just feel like there's something there that I need to get done. And so that's driving me to in a weird way. And that's not a money thing. I don't think. I don't think. So it's more like your life purpose or yeah. having having yeah. done what you you need to do to raise your kids. It, it, it just it's more global than that. Done, done what I need to do. So you like I'm not done. I'm not finished. I need so, to finish. I don't know what I need to do to finish, but I'm not finished. Well, retirement fascinates me because I quit my job at 42 and I thought I'd be happy. Just I, 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 th- I thought it, pres- it was it was it was a horrible decision. Yeah. So let's just say all the media stuff went away tomorrow. Yeah. Would you go back to seeing patients 40 hours a week? I, or what I, would you I do? I fantasize about that. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'd do 40 hours. I, I might, I fantasize about a lot of things. I fantasize about going back. I always loved doing hospital work, like inpatient mm-hmm. medical hospital. I fantasize about that. I fantasize, I fantasize about taking a a bigger job administratively in a, in a substance use setting because mm-hmm. I've got a lot of experience there that I could... I feel like I could make a real difference with that, but that would be a big job. Like I have to really dig in full time. Right. So I fantasize about those things. Yeah. And the reason you don't pursue those is because you still love the broadcasting part of it, or I, again, this you is can where do more I, good with the I feel microphone. Like I feel like that's where the end zone is. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong. You mean like maybe you're going to retire into that? No, I maybe I should be focusing on doing one of these other things. Um, you know, running a big substance program. I'm asking. I don't. I, I don't. Know. I don't know I don't either. Know I, I know, I'm just going by instinct at this point, and uh, the instinct is there's something more to be done creatively. Let's put it yeah. that way. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't even know what that is yet. So who knows? He just went backstage. Yeah. What is that? What What are you finding? I'm curious what you're finding with people and their different neuro- neuroses about money. Well, I uh, you know this it's is all family of origin. This stuff, is right? interview number four, right? So mm-hmm. I, I'm fascinated about the way artists make a living. So I've talked to a novelist. I'm going to talk to several comedians. I'm going to talk to a painter friend. How, uh, how do they? Because I think that's they scrap. Yeah. You know, I mean, a buddy of mine, this buddy of mine's a painter and he's, he's had lots of press attention, but you know, it's not like people, once you're out of the media cycle, it's not like they're going like, Hey, who's that painter guy? Like, you know, like he's got to continually, it's like, he's a consultant renewing contracts and he's got to go out there and find, you know, new people to, to be interested in his work and Mm. it's great stuff, but it's, it's, it's nonstop. Those guys, I've got another visual artist who's a good friend and it's nonstop hustle. A a lot of. Almost every endeavor is that piece, that that working hard. Let's put it under that rubric, you know. But it's also a feature of it is marketing yourself, or I don't know. It's, I think you have to put a stake in the ground as what you stand for, and and try. I mean, I'm trying to create a product here and yeah. ask myself what value can I provide the listener reader and. Hopefully, part of that is sharing some of the experiences I had and using those experiences to open up conversations with people like you to say, well, you, you come from things from a different point of view and your life looks amazing from the outside. What's really going on? And I I think that'll help people by hearing things because people get so tripped up by money in their lives, whether they have none or they have a ton. And that was the surprising part to me. Like I, I said, as a kid, I want to make money because I I don't want to stress about money. And just saying that out loud is hilarious to me. You end up creating lots of stress with lots of money. Totally. Totally. And do you have any sense, when I talk about freedom, do you understand that concept of being free financially? Well, 
I, I think f- freedom is a ratio of how much you need and how much you have or how much you have coming in. Yeah. Is that what you mean by it? I don't know. It's an emotional feeling. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. It's it's a it's the barrister. It's the, it's the coffee maker. But I don't. I'm you, not sure you mean, what it means? But I don't know that there is freedom. I mean, because that's who you are. You can't not be who you are. You can maybe. But check I know and that see, I like, felt, Why am I this way? But I know I have felt better and relief along the way. I really have. Because you've stopped beating yourself up about things, or you stopped wanting things that no, don't make I, I'm you not, happy. I'm not. I'm not somebody that wants a lot of things or buys a lot of things. I'm not right. at all that way. It's more about feeling secure that, that let's, I think it's something in this order that there's sufficient capital that would throw off sufficient mm-hmm. income sure. that I could do what I wanted to do. Right. And could live sort of the way I already, I live presently. But that's part of, that's part of knowing what's going to make you happy from an expense standpoint yeah. and being on the same page with your partner yes. about yeah. what you believe you both want to consume and what you want to provide well, for your so I family. I think we're then lucky that way because I think we're in the same That's the same a thing. big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah. Because money is the most relative thing in the world and there and nobody has the same amount of money, right? There's always somebody with more money than you. Therefore, by definition, a marriage is never 100% equal partnership mm. when it comes to money. Right. And and money brings up issues of values and background and just priorities and every time the Amex bill comes, that can create, that can open the door for, you know, positive or, or negative things to come out. There was a time when we were, we were having trouble with that. I'm not I'm saying little, it does in my house. I'm remembering we had, the, saying, when you said the Amex bill, saying, I got, I had you to, it's like, yeah, I remember <laughs> when the Amex bill was really a source of But that's kind of a beautiful thing though yeah. that you, you said about your wife, because by, by actually bringing her into it, you, you help. Create a partnership. I think so. And it also relieved me of some of my neurosis, too. I just don't even, I just let her manage that and trust it. Well, I think that's interesting, too, because I definitely have the more conservative and the more neurotic thing. Like, look at what we're spending. Yeah. Whereas maybe I'd be happier if I didn't stress about that. Yeah. Maybe I'd be happier if I just had more trust in, you know, where we're spending all our money and stuff like that. I, I would recommend it. All right. I'd recommend it because I think that's the shift I made. Although maybe I'm doing a, you know, on a fool's errand, you know, maybe I make a mistake. Uh, it sounds like you've been doing it for 20 years. I mean, you probably like, notice if, if there were gold we, bars missing do, <laughs> from the basement. We've been doing it for sure for like 10 years. Well, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. That's worked pretty well. What else should we cover? Anything? Um, I have a friend whose parents have separate bank accounts. They've been married 25, 20, 30 years. And they have separate bank accounts and they've never crisscrossed that stuff. Yeah. One person makes the house payment, one person like makes the car payments or something like that. And that's just how they've done it. And I wonder if that's healthy or if that's weird or if that's just like a prenup in a way. Well, I think how a couple, you know, whether couples commingle their funds or manage separate accounts is very, very individually determined by the couple and the individuals that make up that couple. And that's some of that is the family of origin stuff again. Right. And I know lots of people that, that insist on the separate accounts. I can't imagine not commingling. My parents commingled. We're commingled. I, yeah, I, I can't imagine not being that. But if way. there was some prenup, like if there was, you know, yeah. somebody came from a bunch of dough and had, you yeah. know, family family no, constraints and I, here's on where it. I could see it happening, which is if both people, particularly if they're professionals that had to struggle for their professional pursuits and mm-hmm. positions, mm-hmm. and just wanted to have control of what they you know, generate from that. I, I get that. You're not getting my residuals from, from friends. <laughs> there's, there's a 
there's yeah. going to be. And that can go down a road of resentment that can go so many different places that don't even manifest itself for 20 years later or after the kids are gone or something. How do you avoid that? Like, it can be bitterness. Like, you can be angry that she's buying shoes or he's, that he's buying tools or cars or something and, and this just eats away at you for years and years and years and then finally you've just had enough. And the, the Amex thing hit home for me too, but that's just me buying stuff when I get <laughs> I hate myself. It's your relationship I'm totally with you. getting divorced. Oh my God. So I, how do you prevent years of resentment resulting in I, crisis? I know, I know what it is. It's, com- it's communication, but how... But it's not communication. It's compromise. But there's almost always a case where one person is bringing in more. Correct. And it's every, ca- every case. But almost every yeah. case. I wonder if there's some generational uh male female role stuff that plays out here too there's got to be yeah because i imagine a male might feel more diminished by a female making more and, and a female a yeah right it's right and 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 men often feel selfless in doing it because i'm the head of the family and this is what i'm supposed to do right so they don't feel resentful or guilty and the and the female partner may not feel diminished by that may actually feel great about it Right, but if you flip it around, I, I think those days are changing. Mm-hmm. I don't think mental field mm-hmm. as diminished as before, but I don't know. We'd have to talk to the couples and see. Yeah. Well, I think there's a whole episode about money and marriage that uh, could we'll have to get to. Yeah, and get to. But Dr. Uh, ultimately, ultimately, I would just say, you know, money is a psychological. It, it's really about. It's not about the money. It's about the meaning of the money, and it's about the symbolism of the money. When people fight about it, when people have issues on it, and so much of it is built up in our family of origin. Right. And then the social historical context in which we see all these things and live all these things. And then, you know, how we're able to um, reconcile it with our general principles about meaning of living and purpose of living, you know, leading a good life. It's hard. Yeah. It is not easy. And people don't think about it very much. About how to live a good life. How to good life and lead a good life and how money figures into that. And, and what they really want out of life. They just kind of go along to get along, make as much money as they can. and Whatever that means. You know, right. Again, they don't even think what that means. I will tell you, you, when you know somebody is leading a good life because they'll talk about being grateful. They'll talk about gratitude. So if you hear somebody saying, I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful for what I do, or whatever, that, that's somebody who usually is leading a good life. And that life usually includes making a difference for other people, almost always. And it, it may have, uh, I, in my own case, the thing that is sort of the icing on the cake is I have a sort of a creative piece that I never prepared for. I didn't know that was going to be part of my life. It's only been the last four or five years that I've been kind of really looking at it. Before that, it was always just an exploration that people mm-hmm. would present to me. And I'd go, okay, I'll explore that. Now I'm thinking more in terms of what can I create to make a difference. And that's that's pretty satisfying. It's here, Here's a free, now that we've talked about it, it's, it's kind of coming a little clear to me. Freedom to me is to be able to live my life the way I like it now. I like my life. I'd like to be able to live it now without worrying about money. That would be free. Do you think? Do you, do you think that's attainable? Maybe that's what's in the end zone. I don't know. Uh, I think, you know, look. The reality is, we could. It's attainable. But I have to change my life, and that can't be done until I get through grad school. And stuff well, like no, that. I, but even if you had another. 10, 20, 50, whatever the number is, would you, if you had $50 million, would you buy that espresso machine? I don't think you would. I think I would. Oh, really? I think I might. That's the headline. 
I think I might. Fifty million dollars gets Doctor Drew because then you'd go why not? Machine. You'd go why? Why would you? Because you'd still be afraid. Because you'd no, still have to be so, some instincts. And... That's, that's that's where I'm different. I I, yeah. I start to have. I change at different stages. Okay. And I think that, I think I could pretty easily buy an espresso machine at that point. All right. I hope you get that espresso machine. Thank you. Thank you. That'd be crazy. Thanks very much for doing this. I appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. So that was my chat with Dr. Drew Pinsky. That dude knows a lot about a lot of stuff, including addiction, infectious diseases, and Ulysses S. Grant. So hope you enjoyed it. Uh, He was very generous to be one of the first guests on this podcast, so I greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Dr. Drew. Coming up, we've got other great guests that I know you'll want to hear. Ed Roland, the lead singer of Collective Soul. Tony Duff, author of the New York Times bestselling list, The Buy Side. We had a great conversation about his Wall Street career and how it sort of hit the skids when he started uh, doing a little thing called cocaine. Great, funny interview and uh, hopeful, hopeful one as well. What am I plugging? Oh, hey, listen, if you like what we're doing here, and I hope you do, we're going to figure out what it is, by the way. We're going to keep we're going to keep going. We're going to keep just exploring. That's what this is about, exploring how money changes our lives, makes it better, or steers us off track. We're, we're going to find it. If you like it, I sure would appreciate you going to iTunes and both subscribing and rating the podcast with as many stars as you can stomach. Um, if you have to give me one or two, out of empathy. Well, darn it. I'll take it. Um, tell your friends about it. Oh, follow it on Spotify, but also tell your friends about it. You can email it. You can email it. You can't put a disc in the mail because these aren't on DVD. I mean, you could burn a DVD and then send it out like an old AOL disc if you wanted to, but it'd probably be a far more efficient and you could reach a lot more people if you emailed it or tweeted uh, or uh, you know texted. And if you do tweet, be sure to tag me at Paul underscore Ollinger. Ollinger is O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. Um, that is my handle on both Twitter, Paul underscore Ollinger, and on Instagram, a subsidiary of Facebook Incorporated, my um, my alma mater. You can find me on Facebook at slash Paul Ollinger and on LinkedIn at uh, just search Paul Ollinger if you want. I mean, I don't, you know, how many, how much time do you have to really go and do that? Do you have all day? Probably not. Hey, importantly, I appreciate your day. Oh, man, I just messed that up. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Goodbye.